0: Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source. verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at theopenword.org. Thank you.
1: This is Alan Schaefer. Welcome to the study of John that I taught back in the year 2007. The timeless truths we find in this gospel are as relevant today as they were when it was first written by the Apostle John back in the first century. I hope you enjoy today's lesson. Go ahead and open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day and uh, thank you for this opportunity to sit down and study and thank you for your word and thank you for this group and pray that you would challenge us and help us to learn and we just thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're uh, working our way down through John. We're in John chapter 2 this today and um, we're on schedule so we'll see how well we do. So let's get through John 2 and 3. So... We'll see how far we get here. Um, before I started, last week I talked a little bit about um, the life of Christ as far as when it, you know, the his, um, beginning of his ministry, the date of the beginning of ministry. And a lot of the facts I gave you were from my head. And as I went and looked at them, most of them were right, but I got a couple of things that are little, that, that were not right. So if you go out to my website on the life of Christ under topical studies, there's the life of Christ. There's um, some, uh, a sheet you can print it off and get um, on the date of Christ's birth and death out there. And um, basically the birth of Christ had to be somewhere around 5 B.C. And we know this because Herod the Great died in the spring of 4 B.C. So you just do the math and you got to go back to 5 B.C. Alright, because he had the children put to death. And then you find out that... He had children two and under put to death. So if you do the math back from there, Christ could have been born anytime in 5 or 6 B.C. All right. And that's probably Christ. That was really when Christ was born. And, you know, some people say, well, why wasn't it 0 A.D. or 1 A.D.? Well, you know, the guy who did the dating in our calendar, our A.D. B.C. calendar made a mistake in his math. So that's why you're missing the four years. Um. But it's probably around 5 BC, give or take, you know, spring of 5 BC possibly. Um, And then um, if you look at like, well, when did Christ begin his ministry? You have a couple of um, places in the Bible where it seems to indicate when he began. Um, Luke says that he began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Tiberius started reigning. in AD 14, so if he had 15 years, that'd be AD 29, is when he began his ministry. And that was Luke's account. He began it around AD 29. Eusebius, who is a church historian of the second century, said that Christ suffered, in other words, he was crucified, during the 19th year of the reign of Tiberius, which would have been AD 33. Alright, so going with the Luke date and with Eusebius, Christ began his ministry A.D. 29, minister about three and a half years, so spring of A.D. 33 is when he was crucified. All right. Um, John, however, in John 2.20 says, that, and we're going to get there today, the Jews said that Herod had been building the temple for 46 years and Christ was starting his ministry then. Um, Josephus says that the temple began being built in BC 19 so that would mean that Christ made his first Passover appearance, or the account of John 2 would have been right around A.D. 27. All right. And in Luke 3.23, we also have the account that Luke says Jesus was about 30 years when he began his ministry. Well, if he was born in 6, he was about 30, that would be A.D. 26. So the question is, is it A.D. 26, A.D. 27, A.D. 29? Does it really matter? Probably not but if I had to make bets I would probably pick the AD 29 date and the reason I would do that is because Luke specifically dates it by the reign of the emperor all right coupled with what Eusebius said and Luke said he was about 30 it didn't say he was exactly 30 right I mean how many women do you know that say what's your age oh I'm about 30 years old well that could mean anywhere from you know 30 to 39 .999 okay yeah. So, I mean, you know, Luke wasn't trying to be exact. But there's a whole um, little uh, appendix on that out there that you can get and read and, you know. And then um, we covered chapter one, so let's start in chapter two of John. And again, what, uh, from last week, what geographical area does John... Focus on that the other Gospels really omit? Judea. Judea. Basically, it's Judea. Um, he mentions the Samaritan account, but basically, it's Judea. The other Gospels really start with Jesus up in Galilee for the most part and spend most of the time in Galilee. Luke spends a big chunk of time in his Perean ministry, which is across the Dead Sea where Jordan is today. Um, but John is the one who really focuses in on the Judean ministry, which is interesting. He gives us a, a, a view into Christ's life that the other Gospels really omit altogether. All right. And so what you have is um, John John really begins the chronology or his discussion of Christ on, let's say, day one. And day one is um, here is John the Baptist baptizing, verses 19 following. John the Baptist is out baptizing people now where is he baptizing them?
2: Judea.
1: The Jordan. He's in the he's not down in Judea. Bethany? Bethany beyond Jordan it's called now there are two Bethany's that's that's the thing there's the Bethany beyond Jordan and then there's the Bethany okay the Bethany beyond Jordan is up by the Sea of Galilee okay um, you know I can't draw worth, a, worth anything, so don't laugh at my little stick figures and things. But that's one thing amazing. When I, we went to Europe, we go in these churches with these massive paintings, and you just, you know, somebody could actually paint that. I mean, it's amazing. You know, you know, you're being an art person. It's just amazing. You know, you get these 20 by 30 foot murals that people paint, and you know. Yeah, and they they didn't go down, you know, to Michael's and get their paints. You know, they went out to the bog and found the plants and made their own. But, anyways, here's the Sea of Galilee, and then you got the Jordan River, right? And then you got the Dead Sea down here. Bethany beyond Jordan is really up here. All right, it's pretty close to the to the Dead Sea. And another place, the Sea of Galilee, and then another place here is Canaan, which is about right over here. All right, and there's a, it's about. It's about 19 miles between them, somewhere around in there. And that's important because you got the first day, second day, third day here. The other Bethany is down here by Jerusalem. That's the Bethany with Mary, Martha, and, and all of them. All right, Down by Jerusalem. Was
2: in Galilee.
1: Yeah, this is Bethany beyond Jordan is where it, where it talks about. That's where John was baptizing. And then there's a place here... Called um, Anon and Selim. and John is seen baptizing there in John 3. Okay, so this this John th- the point is when Christ was baptized by John, he was baptized up in the sea and the Galilean area. I
2: thought the other side of the Jordan was Perea.
1: This is called Perea. This is called Bethany beyond Jordan. And, and this is beyond Jordan. So
2: Perea is part of Galilee?
1: No, Perea, what you have here, Galilee is this area up here, like. All right, then you've got the Samaritan area, then you've got Judea, and then you've got Perea over here.
2: Isn't that county? Yeah. is in Perea. It's in Perea, it is. Yeah, it is. where does Jordan fit
1: This is the Jordan River. It's sort of like a, a demarcation between them.
2: So John was baptized in, in Korea, not in
1: Galilee. Well, that's the Galilee area. Oh. Okay. All right. It, you know, geographically, it's a Galilean area, but it's across the Jordan River. Okay. And and if you got a map in the back of your Bible, if you go back in your Bible and look at the map, you can pick these places up. I find it really helpful when you're going through trying to figure out where people are at. Because one of the things is, I read this, I said, well, on the first day he did this, he was baptized. The second day you have a calling of the disciples. The third day is up in Cana. Well, the distance between Cana and down here is like 60 miles. Well, that's a long way to hoof it in three days, right? You know, we don't think anything of that. We hop in our car and we're there. But in those days you walked it. So it, that was a long. And really what you find is it's the Bethany beyond Jordan up here is where John was baptizing. Alright? And then Anon and Selim where there was a lot of water is where you find him baptizing in, I think John three here, where he's doing baptism. So he's he's baptizing in this area here. Alright? There are
0: pictures in this this uh, book and I'm surprised how small the Jordan River
1: was Oh yeah, it's not
0: it's like the size of the black
1: river Yeah, it's it's not this great you know, except in the you know in the wet season it's not this mighty Large river, you know. But back in those days, you know, any river of any size was a was an impediment to try and get across because of um, you know the just the geography. You didn't have like massive bridges and things like we got here. So it was it was a little bit of a bother to get across it. But but that's where John was up there baptizing, and so you have him baptizing. Then it says, and the next day, Christ shows up. All right. 29, verse 29. The next day, after the visit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or Pharisees and lawyers, the next day Jesus shows up and he's baptized by John in the Jordan River, all right. And then the next day, Christ we Christ meets some of the disciples, and we have the first calling. And this is a, this is very important to understand. The disciples are called two or three times. There wasn't like one calling of the disciples. All right. This is the initial call. And it's the call of, we have Andrew here and Peter and Nathaniel. All right. Now, this is not where they dropped everything, left Christ and completely followed him yet. All right. But this was a call to discipleship. Okay. And then you have the following day, verse 43, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. So you see what John's doing? This day, then the next day, then the next day, then the next day. So Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. Well, he was in Galilee. Well, he's going from the Bethany area up to Galilee. All right. Um, And uh, he found Philip um, and Nathanael. So you got Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel. Those, there's four of them so far. All right, and then it says, chapter two, verse one, on the third day. All right, so now you've got just a couple more days later. Now, whether you, probably that is the day after he called Nathaniel. So, according to this chronology, the first day of Christ's ministry. If you want to think about the ministry, was the calling of Andrew and Peter, verse 35, the second day, Philip and Nathaniel. the third day, he's off to Cana. And Cana's pretty close. All right? It's not too far for him to walk there. All right? And there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. We don't know who this person is that got married. All right? But in those days, marriages were really a big thing. I mean, it was a big deal for a marriage in those days. I mean, it was like the event of the year almost. And for most people, it was the event of the lifetime. Um, Essentially, I was talking to a friend at work who's from India. He got married in India. And we were talking about weddings and that. And he said, well, guess how many people were at my wedding? I said, I don't know. He said, we had 3,000 people. Yeah, I said, what? you know it's an event over there you know and you got grand grandparents and cousins and second cousins and third cousins and tenth cousins and anybody that can trace them tells to you show up at the wedding he had 3000 people at his wedding you know he says it's not unlike it's not unusual to go through almost your life savings to throw a wedding for your kids i mean it's just so you think you had problems marrying off a daughter I've got you $35 know a play and 35 yeah yeah think about it you know I mean, mm-hmm. just give her a th- just give her five thousand bucks and tell her go go right. get go elope. Right, yeah. right, yeah. you know, <laughs> go alone. Um, But it was a big deal in those days, and usually the, the marriages lasted for at least a week, if not longer. Whether it be festivities and because you had people coming and going, and you know they they come and visit and go and and uh, it was a big deal. And of course, in the Middle Eastern mentality, um, as a host. You know, there's there great importance on being a good host. I mean, we don't think as much of it here in America, but but in those days, um, it was it was a social black eye to be a bad host. I mean, you really they really took it seriously. Um, you know, you see this in the Middle Eastern um, mindset as you read through the Bible. You know, like when when Christ and the two angels show up at Abraham's tent, what does he do? You know, well, it's his responsibility to care for his, these people, these guests. You know, he's going to give them the best food, and he's going to take care of them. You know, he, he is responsible for their safety. If they come under his roof, he's responsible for their safety. Um, when the two angels show up with Lot, what did Lot do? I mean, he, he, tra- he did everything he could to protect them, because that was his responsibility. So being a host was a very important thing, and you had to make sure you had enough of whatever it is that you had to run out of a commodity at a wedding was a was a you know you just didn't want to do that that was really bad and what happened here is evidently the host didn't count the number of guests correctly and ran out of wine now that was really bad it was really bad to run out of wine. Um, it was an embarrassment to the family you know it was, a, it was, it was an insult to the guests and uh, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, why do you think she said that to him?
0: He's been practicing at home. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think she said that to him? Well, I think that she understood to some degree who he was and she
2: understood his compassion on people. And How, many, and their situation.
1: How many miracles had Christ done at this point?
2: None. None.
1: So, how does she know he's going to be able to do anything? Well, she knew he was divine. She knew he was the Son of God. You know, you could say, well, maybe she thought that he could do something. And it, there's, there's every possibility that that's true. She
2: was her son. She might have just looked at him and said, we run out of wine.
1: It may have been a statement of fact. It may have been that this was a relative of hers. You know, she may have been stating a fact to him, Hey, we are run out of wine. You know, this is bad news. I mean, the fact that Christ was invited to this wedding would indicate what? The there's some kind of relation. Uh, we don't know what it is. Um, you know, we do know that Christ had, it's probably not one of his immediate family, like a brother or a sister. Probably wasn't that. But it could have definitely been a cousin or, or something like that. There's, there's, there's probably no doubt that there was some connection there because Cana is not his family residence, right? Nazareth is the family residence, so so there had to be something there that he would be invited to this wedding. You didn't invite just anyone; you invited relatives and close friends. So there was some connection there, and it could have been that Mary was saying, you know, of all hor- horrors, they run out of wine. You know, what are we going to do? And Christ said to him, said to her, "Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet. Come." What do you think he's telling her? Lots of debate on this.
2: Well, he,
1: he, he turns right around and does a miracle now, right?
2: Yeah, no, that so
1: doesn't make any sense because he turns right around and does a miracle.
2: Sometimes it kind of gives me the impression it's almost like he was testing, like the woman that. Uh, was asking for help for her dog. Right. And he says, you know, you don't give them meat, you know, from the table to the... To the little house. dogs. And uh, and yet she turned right around and responded, do whatever he says. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like to me that she gave him this responsibility as her as, his, as her mother. And even though he said, my time's not come yet. do gave him the look you might have, you might been busy, and, you know, units, you yeah. know, how women can get when they're in a, mm-hmm. I call it, in a fast track and a busy mode, and they're on a mission, and they just they don't have time for details. They know what detail they're dealing with right now, and they give it to somebody to take care of. It.
1: Mm-hmm. Prior to the, prior to Christ's ministry, because the ministry starts shortly after this, prior to that, what was his relationship to his mother? Took care of her, right? Because evidently Joseph is dead by this time. There's no mention of him. So what's Christ trying to do here? You think? Break the tie. Break the tie. <laughs> you know, it, it's not that he's trying to be impolite to his mom, but this is a this is an idiomatic phrase in, in Hebrew to to put distance between the parties. Say, you know, mom. You know, there's a transition here. I'm transitioning from your son. I'm transitioning from your authority or whatever to that for which I came, the mission of God. All right? And we can interpret that as abrupt or whatever. Evidently, Mary understood what was going on, right? Because it it doesn't appear like she took that as an insult. But there comes a time in our lives, you know, as we're growing up, that our relationship with our parents changed, don't, don't it? You know, it used to be my mother was my mother. Now she is a my, one of my best friends and she still has a respect I have because she's my mother. But she doesn't tell me when to go to bed and when to get up and what to eat for dinner and finish my vegetables, although I like vegetables. And, you know, she because the relationship is altered now, it's changed. And that's what Christ is doing here. Now, as the eldest son, what would have his responsibility been normally?
2: Overall, care for his mother.
1: Yeah, his responsibility as the eldest son would have been to care for his mother, but can he care for his mother and do his ministry? No. Now, we know that there are other brothers, right, that were there. And Christ did care for his mother in the sense that at the cross, he passed the responsibility for care of his mom over to his cousin John, right? So we know that. But. He's trying to get his mom to understand here, his mother, wait a minute. I'm not under your authority. I'm not here to do your bidding. I'm not here to solve every problem that you want me to solve. I have a divine purpose. Now, it just so happened that what his mother needed wanted him to do and what he did was the same. Now, do you think his mother knew he would turn water into wine? Probably not. What did she think he would do? Yeah, go down and buy some wine. You know, go get some wine, and and it's it's common. You know, when you, you know, when you throw a big party, you might have somebody helping you with the party, and if you run short on supplies, they might take off to the Seven Eleven or whatever they had in those days and get some supplies. You know, um, and you would let them know. Evidently, that's what was going on here. And his mother said to the servants, "Whatever he says to you, do it." All right. So she didn't take this as an insult. She wasn't all in a tizzy about this. She and and I think if anything, she started to realize, wait a minute, because now she did. She know why Christ came into the world. Oh, yeah, she did. And she's probably thinking, wait a minute, you know, not he he has to be on his own. He he has a mission, a message uh, to do here. He's got to be about his father's business, not mine. And she tells him, well, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And it says there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing about 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So there are some water pots there that they've used for purification rituals. And they're about 20, 30 gallons. So think of a big garbage can. You know, think of those big round, gar- that's about 30 gallon garbage cans what it is. And that's about the size of these water pots. And usually they were made out of stone. They were either either clay, or they could have been hewn stone. Um, but they were they were pretty large um, containers. And Christ uh, said, fill them up with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Just fill them up with water. <coughs> so they did.
2: Yeah. What is what is the manner of the purifying? I mean, what was
1: that about? Um, there were there's there. It's there probably one of the Jewish rituals, the purification rituals they had. And part of purification is you had to have a lot of water to do the purification. I mean, you look at the priests. Remember when the priests went to the the temple, they had the the, the bronze laver there. And what was that for? Well, that was water for purification and and all kinds of things that they had to do. And the Jews were very fastidious about this. They also, if you remember later on, the disciples got chided by the Pharisees because they didn't wash their hands properly you know and in an era you know you didn't go to the tap and turn on the water you'd have water there so that's what these were for okay
2: I think the the Orthodox Jews still use that don't they that method for cleanliness like if there's a funeral or or something I mean they they have those yet Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and also I you know note here says they were made of stone because Stone would not become impure. You know, in the legal Jewish legal system, things became impure. Everything it touched became impure. You know, I had a guy, we were going to have a picnic at our house and I invited him over. He was a Orthodox Jew and he wouldn't come. And I asked him, why not? And he said, well, you know, I, I can't eat anything there. I said, well, why not? I said, well, the knife that you knew used may have touched something, may have touched something, may have touched something, may have touched, may have touched ham and I can't eat it. And I looked him in the eye and said, you really think God's keeping score? And he said, yeah. So, but I mean, try to invite an Orthodox Jew over to your house. You know, because they, they, you know, even though the, what you might serve them is kosher, it may have touched something that was used to cook something that was non-kosher and thereby it becomes unclean because it touched your oven, which touched a piece of ham. Yeah, the whole kitchen has to be, co- I mean, it's it's nuts what they have to go through, but that's what it was here, it was purification rituals that they used this for. You have to bury it in the ground for a week if you touch something
2: and then it gets clean again. That's what my aunt said, we used to keep kosher. Yeah. She had all the dishes and stuff for the meats, and all the dishes and stuff for the milk products and if you accidentally got the spoon out of the wrong drawer and got some cottage cheese or something, go bury it in the backyard for a week. Wow uh, the dirt itself. yeah
1: the dirt <laughs> I'd rather eat dirt than you know what yeah and it said here that um, he said draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast this is the MC in charge of the feast and they took it and when the master feast tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from the servants who drawn the water knew the master feast called the bridegroom and he said every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk then the inferior you have kept the good wine until now
2: Why did the servants blindly trust him? Cause, Cause
1: cause, he didn't even taste it because Mary said whatever he tells you to do, do it Whatever. It is. and evidently when they drew it out they said, "Wait a minute! This isn't water anymore. There's something different here." Yeah, I mean, they drew it out. It, they saw it was wine. Could
2: these servants have been slaves,
1: or probably slaves? Probably, you know, they would just do whatever. And and Mary said, "Whatever he tells you to do, do." And it means that these people who, that were getting married had some means. You know, they had they had um, they were not poor. They had some wealth to them to have servants. Um, there now at, at this time a, a lot of in a, you know, if I pick on Baptist it's because I was one All right, but a lot of the Baptist people say well this wasn't it wasn't wine. You know, it was grape juice <laughs> Alright, let's not kid ourselves, right? This was wine now understand something else This wine was not what you get today when you order wine. It was a, there's a big difference um, most wine in those days was one to two percent alcohol maybe but it, there was alcoholic. How do you know it was alcoholic? It fermented well, fermented. And what else do you get from this text? They were well, well, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, you wait until they get a little bit of a tizzy before you give them the bad stuff. You know, you start out with the good and you work your way to the bad. Now, again, this is not like wine today. You know, that's, you know, 11 to 22 percent alcohol or whatever it is today. This was very, it was almost non-alcoholic. But there was alcohol content. And it was needed in those days because you're in a dry, arid, desert environment and you didn't have refrigerators, right? So, you know, if you didn't have some alcohol in it, the bacteria would, would, you know, cause you get ill and things like that. This was alcoholic and Christ made alcoholic wine, not intoxicating wine, but there was a there's enough alcohol in it to make it wine. It wasn't grape juice.
2: 180
1: gallons might have been you, well if you drank it all day long you could get it you know and again understand that the wine in those days they did, it, it didn't ferment long. I mean it takes a long time to get wine to ferment to get you know high alcohol content like you see today. Most of this was one to two percent alcohol. <coughs> so how long would you have to drink this stuff to get drunk? Take a while, right? And that explains like in Acts when it says, when they say, well, these guys are drunk, they say, how can we be drunk? It's only the third hour of the day. In other words, we haven't had time to drink all day to get drunk. You know, um, it was alcoholic. It was not, enti- you know, the, the high alcohol content, but whatever it was, it was really good stuff. And how do you know it was good stuff? Well, because Christ made it. Yeah. All right. Christ made it. So whatever he made, here it was okay, and it was good stuff to drink. All right. And by the way, just just an aside: Does the Bible prohibit you from drinking alcohol at all? No, no, no. What does it prohibit? Drunkenness. 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 No. That's wrong. Say don't
2: drink it if you were a brother.
1: Yeah, there there are other considerations to take into cons- You know, and oh, by the way, I've never drank in my life. So I have just got back from Germany, Munich. You know, beer capital of the world. Never drank. Never, Never drank had. You. Not once. Not once. The, the most alcohol I got was Nyquil. All right. That's about it. Um, but yeah, that's quite a bit. But but and and I do that. I do that by choice because in our society it is a stigma, usually to drink. In America society, it is generally seen as a negative. All right. Um, in Europe, it's not negative. In Europe, it's a staple of their diet. But we're not in Europe. We're in America, you know. And so I just feel personally that it's better that I not drink. I don't need to drink alcohol, and just never have. But, but back in those days, this was a staple of the diet. Uh, most of the water you didn't want to drink. In fact, you know, back then, think about it. You know, the the village well was round the sewers. I mean, what what do you get out of the? In fact, today. You know, you go to a lot of foreign countries, they say, don't drink the water, right? If you drink anything, drink bottled water and, or, or drink something with alcohol content to kill the germs. Or if not, you're going to get malaria or whatever else you get. You know, so you really want to get, understand that. But Christ made good stuff. And this was the first miracle he did. Now, do you think his mom figured that he would do this? Probably not. Probably not. This is the first miracle done by Christ but what does it show that he has power over everything He has power over everything in this case is power over nature he could take water and make it wine okay make it good wine yeah cuz it says so this is the first sign this this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee verse 11 the beginning of the signs.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, next okay.
1: Yeah. This was the first one that he did.
2: It's also implied uh, in the water makes the wine. From water to wine. It's uh, implied to water is life.
1: So. Now, nah, water here is water. Yeah. Plain yeah. I think water here is just plain water. Yeah. It's like you know, one of the things we got to be careful is not to make everything a spiritual type. This was water. They needed wine. Christ made wine. You know. Um, But it was good wine. It was the best. It was the best that this guy ever tasted. Because he was amazed at how well it tasted. And of course, you'd expect that from the hand of God, right? If God makes something, it's the best. Um, This quality stuff. And this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now what does it mean that his disciples believed in him? Did they believe, believe in him?
2: Probably not, but they understood that he had something Yeah
1: He's not an ordinary person There's something unique about him And you got to understand the disciples th- Their belief grew over time These are not giants of the faith at this point You understand that Yeah, but but there's one thing. Stop and think about it yourself. When you were saved, you know Jesus, is the Son of God. But has your faith grown over the years? Yeah, it grows, doesn't it? It gets deeper, it gets stronger. You know, this is the begin. There, and in fact, usually Christ, when he talked to the disciples, would he say, "Oh ye of little faith." It's not, "Oh ye of great faith." It's, "Oh ye of little faith." And in fact, if I remember right, the only people that Christ ever said had great faith were the Syrophoenician woman. What gyrus, I think it was, that had great faith. All the pagans had great faith. The centurion, he had great faith. All the disciples had little faith. And why is that?
2: But they still doubted after seeing.
1: They doubted after seeing, and the other issue is faith is not faith is your faith is measured by what light you have. Right? Rahab had great faith. Why did she have great faith?
2: She, did was hear the
1: stories and she, responded. she heard stories that were 40 years old and placed her life in them knowing hardly anything at all about God. The first grader in your Sunday school class knows infinitely more about God than Rahab ever did. And yet she banked her life on it. And that's why she was called great faith. The Syrophoenician woman, what does she know? if I touch him maybe I'll get better. She didn't have a great theological concept of who he was. She didn't understand the hypostatic union. She didn't understand any of that stuff. All she knew is that I'm gonna push through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment and maybe I'll be healed. She had great faith. Yeah for her. Because women just didn't do that. You know I think Vance Havner says the only time you see a woman doing that is at a sale at a department store. You know, where she's pushing through a crowd to get something. Um, but the whole point there is that these people exhibited great faith because they they put everything on what little they knew, and they they put their entire trust in it. And here's the disciples to see miracle, 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 raising the dead, miracle, miracle, miracle. And you know, they're out on the sea and the water's getting a little bit high, and they think, oh, well, we're dead. That's it. It's like, come on, guys.
2: <laughs> so the the world is believing. His first time show up. They the, it, they,
1: believed, they they believe. They believe. For
2: the disciple. Mhm.
1: And
2: then they didn't say they believe yet. But after first the miracle, and then they said it, they believe. It.
1: Well, they believe, but but belief is a grow. That's a growing belief, is what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a growing belief. Right.
2: Right.
1: So All right. They believed know. enough to follow him, right? But now they're seeing, wait a minute, there's something more to him than just a teacher like John. Yeah, there's something here. Right. And it, and it kept believing and believing and believing. Now just, here's a question here. Just because you're a disciple, are you a true one? No. We're gonna find that out in a couple weeks in John 8. Where a lot of the disciples walk no more with him. You see, what happened to them? I thought they were disciples. No, they were they were followers. They followed him around, but when it came right down to it, and he laid the cost out on the table, they said, "Well, we're not willing to pay that price," and they left. All right.
2: Well, you know, I just thought about it. It's it's not like he transformed one garbage can into one. You know, the, the water. These are six of them that he did this. And now, I mean, by the craziest of flukes, one might do something. But to do six of them all at once like that, that I could see where the disciples would begin. Yeah. To, to start, you know, drawing toward this man and saying, mm-hmm. hey, there's something special going
1: on. And, and it, didn't, it didn't take him any more effort to do six than it did to do one. Right. Or to do six billion. I mean, it, with God, you know, being infinite in power... It's nothing.
2: So another gospel you know, always uh, compare the bride and groom,
1: mm-hmm.
2: just like uh, Jesus Christ and uh, the deliverer. Mm-hmm. That's why he performs the miracle in the, marriage, the wedding, wedding, wedding-based uh, miracle. They implied to Jesus is. Uh,
1: it, no, I don't think it's that way at all. I think it was just a place we went <clears throat> Yeah,
2: with some I know some commentary.
1: One of the things, and just in the site, one of the things is there are people that read theology and everything. Look, a lot of times, what did Sigmund Freud say? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. You know, there's nothing psychoanalytical about it. All right, and, and by and large, the Bible is just what it is. This was a wedding. There's, it's not like John's trying to give some spiritual, you know. Example of Christ being the bride and we're bridegroom and we're the bride, and it has nothing to do with that. It was a wedding he went to, it was just a wedding. Don't read anything more into that, you know, because because once you do that, then it becomes a free for all, you know, you can make it mean anything you want, and your, your spin on it is just as good as somebody else's spin. Um, that's really violating, I think, the the um the grammatical historical hermeneutic where. You take the Bible for face value, what it says in context, and not read all kinds of... How would they have understood it? Someone at the wedding, how would they have understood what Christ did? What yeah, would. they want to understand oh, he's trying to depict that he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. They wouldn't have got that at all. They would have just said, you know... Give me another glass. Give me another glass. Give you know, a they wouldn't a have... second and third
2: century believers reading God, John's gospel wouldn't have
1: No. And a lot and a lot of this stuff came with origin and after, where you know, if you took the bibliology class, you know you got your levels of interpretation. You got the plain sense, the spiritual sense, a hyper spiritual sense, and a mystical sense. And so every passage of scripture has multiple meanings. Look, God does not encode his truth that way. So focus on Focus on what it says. It was, yeah, it was a, it was a wedding, it was a social event, it was an embarrassment. They ran out of wine. Christ turned the water into wine. It was the first miracle he did. All right, and it was the inauguration, a sense of his ministry, and it was done in order to show his power over these things and to draw people, draw the disciples into a deeper belief of him. Now, you got to understand something here, too. And you're going to see this throughout the Gospel of John and the rest of, the rest of the Gospels. Miracles do not make somebody believe. we really got to get over that. You know, we get this idea that, well, you know, if we go to this crusade and somebody can do a miracle, people will respond to Christ. They'll believe. No, they won't. All right? No, they won't. Um, how do you know that? Well, let's remember, children of Israel, right? The average Israelite at the time of the Exodus, what did they see? Well, it's, yeah, they see the sea parted. They see frogs. They see the marina. They see darkness. They see the death of the firstborn. Water turn to blood. I mean, the the decimation of the Egyptian army, and they're out in the desert and it's a little hot. And what's their conclusion? God brought us out here to kill us. We know it. That's the truth. All right, people, you got to understand. All right, miracles do not produce faith. They don't.
2: Right. But it doesn't create belief.
1: It doesn't create belief. All right. What will it do? It will strengthen belief that's already there. But it doesn't make an unbeliever a believer. I mean, stop and think about it. Your average Pharisee in Christ time. You know, you sit him down and say, well, tell me about this Jesus guy. Oh, well, he raises the dead. Wow, that's pretty interesting, you know. What else did he do? Well, you know, he fed the 5,000 with just five little loaves and two fish. What else did he do? Well, you know, he heals everybody. I mean, you know, he puts arms back on people and raises the dead and cleanses leprosy and all that. Well, what is he anyways? Oh, he's, he's the son of the devil. He's Beelzebub. He... It's like, hello, anybody home? You know, it's like, what do you think? And and the, the thing to understand is that if when you're in unbelief, no amount of miracle is going to change your mind. Understand, you are so depraved. The human being is so depraved that God could do every miracle in the book, and you still wouldn't believe. That's just the way it is. And we got to get out of this idea that if people can just see a miracle or just see a sign, they'll believe. No, they won't. They never did. It never happened. It doesn't happen. People believe because God changes their hearts and gives them the faith to believe, and then they believe. Now, what miracles will then do is they will strengthen belief, right? As you see God work and see God do things, it will strengthen the belief that you already have, but it won't create belief out of nothing. It never did. The greatest times of miracles in the Bible had the most unbelief. In fact, if you read uh, Hebrews right, how many people died in unbelief? How many of the Israelites died in unbelief? Two. All of them, but two.
2: Yeah.
1: What does it mean to die in unbelief? Are they in heaven? No. Probably not. They saw the miracles, they saw the parting of the Red Sea, the, the miraculous, you know, provision of God. And every time they turned around, their thought was, God brought us out here to kill us. Hmm. That's why He did it. And why is that? Because of their hardness and unbelief. And unbelief, by the way, is a decision. It's a choice. The Pharisees had all the evidence in the world to them, that all the evidence presented to them and they would not believe because Christ was not what they wanted Him to be. They couldn't control Him. Therefore, since we're of God and He's not of us, He can't be of God. That's the end of the discussion for them. And no amount of evidence in the world Christ said you guys seek a sign I'm not going to give any more signs I'll give the sign of the prophet Jonah Christ was tired of giving signs to people who would not believe and when they were finally pressed against the wall their conclusion was well he does it by the power of Satan he does it by Beelzebub the prince of demons miracles strengthen faith but it won't produce faith it never has it never will it never will and it says here um, after this he went down to Capernaum he, his mother, his brothers and his disciples and they did not stay there many days. Now one of the things you ha- you ask, one of the things I ask of course as I read this, okay Jesus was baptized here very shortly after that he's at the Cana feast. I thought he was driven by the devil into the wilderness to be tempted after his baptism. I mean Luke and Mark and Matthew talked about that was he or was he not and what's the answer the
2: supplements, the details we the he
1: was and when was he probably driven into the wilderness A bit while later. probably shortly after this you know probably right here in this in this little set here between verse 12 and verse 13 is when he went off into the wilderness to be tested of the devil because in Matthew and Mark and Luke it doesn't say immediately he went in. It's just that after his, after his baptism, the next event they record, they don't record the Cana incident or anything, the next thing they record is that he is driven off into the wilderness to be tempted.
2: One of the Gospels does state that it's immediate.
1: Well, what does it mean to be immediate? Out
2: of the
1: water. Out of the water, because that would not fit this, would it? Because he got him baptized, and then the next day, and then the next day, That's a good paper topic. When was he baptized? in a chronology of John. Now, now we leave, now we go forward to the Passover time. And when was that? When was the Passover? Spring, springtime of the year, somewhere around springtime of the year. So when he had the Passover, okay. Now, if Christ ministered for three and a half years, he was killed at a Passover, right? Okay. So, if he's killed at Passover, he ministered for three years, three and a half years, how long would he have been in ministry before this Passover occurred? Before the first one. If this is the first Passover, six about six months. So, there's plenty of time for the, you know, the, the wilderness experience and that. And again, John's not trying to give us a detailed blow-by-blow, day-by-day diary. All right, he's focusing in on on on, on um, certain times of Christ's life. To this point, we've got, you know, the early Galilean ministry, his baptism, the first um, miracle, you know, the calling, the initial calling of the disciples, and now he's going to go down to the early Judean ministry, which is down in Judea. With the first Passover, he went to. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And of course, geographically, and if you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up because Jerusalem is high on a mountain. Well,
2: I wonder where the disciples were when he was after being tempted. That's because they well, him yeah.
1: After well, if, if you study and, and and I I can't bring it all in my head right away. Um, but there were multiple callings of the disciples. All right, even the same disciples were called multiple times, and evidently the first call was a call to follow Christ, not not, not vocationally, okay, not drop your nets and all that, but but a, a call to learn from Him. And so you would follow Him. Now, if Christ went off into the min- in the wilderness and be tempted, what would you do? Well, you'd be doing your job because you didn't leave your nets yet but then at a later point there was another call and then the final cause when Christ went up to the mountain came down and selected twelve to walk with him that was the final calling of the twelve but there were a couple of callings of the disciples if you look through the gospel records you can see there's multiple callings some said they were you know you had the initial call then the call to a deeper following of Christ and then the final call which was drop everything leave your family full-time you know follow Christ
2: first chapter of John it does not
1: have Jesus' actual baptism. It has John referring to it Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have his actual baptism. Well it says here um, verse 32 John bore witness saying I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. It seemed to be implied in there. Well right
2: that's what I'm saying. It doesn't doesn't say you're right. But it does not say at this point Jesus was baptized and that's why I'm trying to get that in there you know mm-hmm. work the chronology of the baptism and the wilderness and then returning and, and there
1: are people that have spent a lot of time trying to sort this out I think it's best to understand that, that this is the referring to Christ's baptism although it doesn't say John baptized him oh, right. I, 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 do I, I, I think definitely this is when he was baptized okay. well, um, and then, I'm just
2: trying to work the, the timeline from, from from this gospel yeah and that's difficult to do because it doesn't state a specific time
1: no it doesn't,
2: in no, no,
1: okay. no. Um, so the Passover was at hand and of course what we as a Jewish male what we were required to do at the Passover go to Jerusalem to the Passover all right okay. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. And when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to them who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house houses, eat me up. Now this isn't all the disciples, all 12 of them, right? But there are some of them that are with him. And what did Christ do? Well, he goes up to the temple, and what does he find there? 19. A total menagerie, right? Yeah. Now, was it necessarily wrong that you were you would be able to buy a sacrifice at the temple? Was that necessarily a wrong thing? No. Why not?
2: Well, because in, in back in the Old Testament, where this is established. God, that God makes a provision for those people if they don't have these animals that there would be animals
1: available. Right. I mean if you're coming from Rome you're not going to bring your sheep with you. Right. it will be a scrawny bag of bones by the time it gets there and it would be disqualified. You know. So, so they had to be provisioned for that. So that wasn't necessarily wrong. Was it necessarily wrong that they had the money changers? No. no. Not because it was a requirement. You pay a half shekel. Temple tax. All I have is Roman drachmas. So you had to have some way to translate a drachma into a shekel. So that wasn't in and of itself necessarily wrong. What was wrong? It was the profiteering. And that's what was going on. And by the way who ran the profiteering things here? No? Sadducees. They They were the ones that ran the temple. Early yeah, they were the mob. They were the mob. They were the Jewish mafia. All right. They ran the temple. All right. And, and you know, they, they sort of had, you know, they sort of had a monopoly on this. So, I mean, if you happen to do bring your animal, they could disqualify it and force you to buy one of theirs at an exorbitant price because they ran the temple. And you had to change your money, you know, so they could charge you you know that plus 20% to change your money from Roman drachmas to silver shekels so you could give your half shekel temple tax and that's what got that by the way that's why the Sadducees were so riled at Christ for the most part because he got him in the wallet because you gotta understand that the, the Sadducees Caiaphas and Annas they made they were, they were multi-billionaires I mean they were the godfathers of their time you know, I mean, they, they made, they were extremely wealthy because they ran the temple and they were able to charge these amounts and get kickbacks on all of this. And, you know, if you wanted to have a money changing t- table there, you had to pay them a fee to set up your money changing table. I mean, these guys are fat cats.
2: Now, now what the aspect of the
0: outer court for the Gentiles coming to? Is it with this incident? Because I know one of the incidents where he tossed these guys out, where he said,
1: "You know." Um, well, they would not have been. Understand, the temple was a big place. Right. Most likely, these were they were not in the holy place. They were not in the court of the Jews. All right. They may not have even been in the court of the Gentiles, but they were in the temple area. Okay. okay? Because you couldn't go into the, the. The temple wasn't that big a place. I mean, the Holy of Holies was 8 feet by 8 feet by 8 feet. You know, the holy place wasn't very big. You certainly couldn't fit, fit a lot of people in there. I mean, it's not a huge, huge place. Probably the whole temple area, I, I don't have the exact measurements, but, you know, with the court of the um, Jews and all that, it was probably no bigger than our sanctuary. Okay. You well, know? Yeah,
2: I, I'm understanding that there was an outer court which was for the Gentiles. Right, there's an the outer court. ...was being abused by these money
1: It could have been where they did that. Yeah. Now you couldn't; they didn't do it on the inner court with the Jews, right, right. but it could have been on the outer courtyard area. Gentiles. And there was a there was a place where the Gentile could go up to that wall, but he could not go in. Right. All right. And they had they had bronze plaques saying, "If you enter this as a Gentile, you're responsible for your own death. They would kill you um, to go in there. It would def- defile the temple. But they were they were right there, and they were making all kinds of money. And to get in to do your sacrifice, you had to go through this. Crowd of guys here hawking their different animals and everything else. I mean, it was a real menagerie, and they made they made gobs of money. I mean, they, they were very wealthy people doing this, was and they turned it into merchandise.
2: Would this area be a pretty good sized area as far as the number of vendors and people doing the business? Think of the
1: fair on a busy day, trying to get somewhere. Yeah.
2: So when, when we say he chased them all out, I mean, I mean that would have had to take quite
1: a he was not he he was not a wuss. We think of Christ as being a wuss. He was not a wuss. You know, this guy, he was big. He, he was a—he was an architecton. You know, we call him a carpenter. In those days, you no know, carpenters didn't just, you know, go down to the lows and get the wood and nail it together. They went out and cut the tree down, sawed it into logs. And and not only that, but probably he worked with his hands. He was a masonry. I mean, the, the word there is very general. It's, 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 it's not just carpenter in the sense of cutting wood. It's a builder. He, he probably built with stone, with wood, with all kinds of stuff. He was not a weak guy. Christ. And of course not being touched with the taint of sin. There would be no um, decay or anything like that. He was—he Imagine him, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, muscle guy driving him out.
2: Plus I'm thinking, you know, if they've got all this space and these animals, maybe a half dozen or so tables might be sufficient. And
1: one, well, once you get the animals running, what happens? You know, you've got a stampede, you know. You know, that's one of those review. You know, when I get to heaven, I like to see the videos on this. Yeah, I would. Too. You know, but but Christ, you understand, Christ was not a weakling. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, when you look at the abuse he went through on the cross. Did they, did they have weapons or this? You know, we would he, we would have died. None of us would have made it. You know.
2: It seems to me there, there could have been someone there to restrain him. You know, I'm sure. You know, they're doing business, they've got. There well, their and he was certainly
1: mad enough and fierce enough that they ran. I, and I
2: believe that too. They ran. I believe, you know, he's, a, you he's know, the son of God, he is God, he has all power.
1: And he, and he could have put a divine fear in them as well, you know. Yeah. Um, he And by the way, how many times did he drive them out of the temple? Three or four times. Almost every time he showed up at the Passover, there was a riot because he drove them out of the temple. And the reason is because this is a house of prayer. It's not a house of merchandise. He's not saying it's not it's wrong to provide animals. But you guys are you guys this you're not you're not in this to help people pr- to provide animals so people can worship me. You're in here to provide animals so you can make money. Worship is irrelevant to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the motivation that 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 made him sick.
2: So nobody doing nobody. Time.
1: He threw him out. Yeah.
2: He, he's
1: a very handy man too. He, he's carpenter, so. Yeah,
2: whatever he, you know, no, he you, made squirrel, you
1: know? He, he made a whip, a bull whip, and threw and, and you know. And he's. He, Christ was strong. He
2: right away, this, yeah,
1: whatever he did, he chased him out of there. Handy, you know. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, like, you know, cockroaches, they came back after he left, but at least he, he threw them out, you know. And then the Jews answered and said to him, "What sign do you show us, since you do these things?" Now, what were they saying? What were they thinking there? Well, if you're God or you're some prophet, give us a sign so we know that you have the authority from God to do this. And remember what Paul said about the Jews. What are they always seeking for? Sign. sign. Give me a sign. And Christ says, "You know, I've given you signs. I've raised the dead. I've healed people. I've done. And you still don't want to believe. No more signs." You know, later on he says, no more signs. And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said to them, this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. By the way, later on he says, the son of man will be it's three days and three nights, John was three days and three nights on the heart of the earth, so with the Son of Man. This was the sign. What was the greatest sign that Christ ever gave them that he had the right to do this? He rose again. He rose again. You want to know if Christ had God's stamp of approval on his life? He rose again. Amen. That answers it. And that's what you know, remember Romans chapter one, verse four, Paul says. He, he was born, he was a seed of David according to the flesh. We know that because we could trace his lineage. But he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. How do you know what forever separated, and it says, it's interesting there, he was declared, the word declared, horizo means to mark out. We get horizon, a marking line. What forever separated Christ from every other human being? He rose again from the dead. That's
2: right. he's,
1: no the he's no longer there, empty. And that, that declared him to everybody that he was the son of God. And that's what he's saying here. And of course, they missed it because they said, well, you know, it took Herod 46 years to build. What do you see here now? You're going to build it in three days? Well, he wasn't talking about that. They missed it. In fact, when did the disciples figure it out? After the resurrection. Then they, they remembered. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, that's what it means. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you wouldn't have done any better you been there. You'd have missed the point too. All right. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they thought saw the signs what he did. So when he was there, what was he doing? Signs. What kind of signs? Well, maybe healing and various miracles. It doesn't tell us exactly what it was. But he was doing signs and it says many believed on him. Now what does it mean when it says many believed on him? This is where you gotta really put on your theology hat. There's believe and then there's believe. Right? There's a lot of people that believe Jesus is God, but they don't really believe Jesus is God. Right? Do the Catholics believe Jesus is God? Well, intellectually they do. Are they saved? The vast majority aren't. The devils believe. But do they really believe? Alright. you got to understand when John uses this term belief you got to understand within the context all it means is from the human perspective right? There was a, a, a belief in Christ. There was a, a, a an initial belief and a following of Christ. Simon Magus. Did Simon Magus believe? No. Well yeah and no right? Well
2: yeah. He, he believed in the power yeah. that was available.
1: He believed when he saw the miracles, he believed, because he was a magician. Right. Remember Acts 8? Yeah. He was a magician. He believed. In fact, the guy was even baptized, of all things. Made a member of the church. Peter shows up. They get the gift of the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues. And he wants to buy that trick, because, man, that's a cool one. I, mean, I can I make some money at that one. And what did, Christ, what did Peter say? You have no part with us, son of the devil. <laughs> Was Simon Magnus a true believer? No, he believed, but he didn't believe. Right.
2: So the difference is when you truly believe, it brings forth a change.
1: Absolutely, there's a change. In fact, we're going to really beat that horse to death in in John eight, because in John eight you really see this. You know, Christ asked him. You know, he started giving the, the uh, requirements for discipleship. And, said, and many of his disciples walk no more with him. Now, there's a bunch of people that say, well, you know, that's just the weak Christians going away because they weren't ready to make him Lord of their life. But they're really still saved. Baloney, that's garbage. They were followers, but they weren't really followers. Who are your true disciples? If you continue in my words, then you are my true disciple. There's a lot of disciples of Christ who are not disciples of Christ. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you really follow Jesus. All right? Because there's a falling away. And even John says they went out from us because they were not of us. They look like they were. It looked, you know, even in the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils? You got the seed that springs up and everybody says, wonderful, hallelujah, they're saved. And three months later, they're a Buddhist. Or whatever. They like the wheat material, right? Yeah, they're not really right. born again. It looks that way from our perspective. It looks like they were, but how do you know you're true? A true disciple because you stick it out. There's a transformation. That's there's so a change.
2: That's so beyond me. I, I that that troubles me. This, this passage I was reading about because intellectually I believe in Christ because it has to. Be. It, mm-hmm. there's, there's too many facts that have been presented that cause me to believe that he was the son of God. Yeah. But for me to say um, I believe and I have faith because the Holy Spirit filled me with that is hard for me to grasp. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have doubts about that. I just, well, how can it be that that way? How do I distinguish between uh, me being saved intellectually and me being saved as a result of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. And you, it's hard to self... Examine yourself. All my life has changed.
1: It's well. I can't get rid of you in the class, so that's well, one thing. You know, yeah, there, I mean. There's times
2: when I when I'm not in the class either.
1: So I mean, well, the the I point, the up, the, the yeah, and,
2: ups and, downs.
1: and that's the struggle we all have. You know, we all have our ups and downs in life, and there are sometimes say, well, am I really a Christian? We all face that. Mm-hmm. But as I look at my life, I see a transformation. I see, a, you know, I can understand the Scripture. I see a holy desire to. I don't want to sin I really don't I mean I do but I don't want to where does that come from you know it's the power of the Holy Spirit that that does that it gives me yeah we have a hunger you know we have a desire to know God you know the and some people say well you know I don't know if I'm saved because I'm so bothered when I sin well that means you are saved right I mean the average pagan could care less when I sin other than getting caught um, when you truly are broken over sin, that's an evidence of the Holy Spirit. you know. And the whole point that Christ makes throughout John is those who truly believe follow and stick it out. They don't go away. They don't turn their back. They don't leave. And you see that borne out with Peter and Judas, right? What's Peter and Ju- Look at Peter and Judas. From the external viewpoint of the average observer were both of them disciples? Sure. But which one was really a disciple? But Peter denied the Lord. But what happened? He was totally broken and he came back. See that's the difference. As a Christian you may fall into a a pattern of sin. You may even deny the Lord. But you're gonna come back. It's not going to be a forever thing. But if you turn your back on the Lord and walk away and just keep going and nothing happens, you were never part of it in the first place. You know, I remember one martyr, I forget the guy's name. Under he he was in Fox's book of Martyrs or Martyrs Mirror, I can't remember the name of him, but uh, he was tortured to deny Christ and that he 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 eventually signed a recantation of his faith. And it was so broken over doing that and so distraught. That he recanted his recantation, and as they burned him at the stake, his statement was, "This is the hand that denied my Lord." And he stuck that into the fire first, and held it there. You know, that's not, that's someone who came back and was broken over it, and and that's the ten, I mean that's just what the scripture lays out. no if it were possible it's not possible because you have the holy spirit if it were possible even the very elect would be deceived but god holds us god that's the wonderful thing god holds you you're 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 sticking it out does not depend on you sticking it out right because if it did we're all sunk my salvation is not because I hang on to God my salvation is because God hangs on to me yeah yeah I mean we're gonna hit that we're gonna hit this later in John 10 my sheep hear my voice I know them they follow me and I, I hold them in the palm of my hand and no man can take them out of my hand and people say, yeah, but you can jump out of his hand. That's stupid. You can't jump out of his hand. He's saying, you're in the palm of my hand. You can't get out. You can't lose it if you have it. And God holds on to you. And God hangs on you. And God keeps you. And I've seen this in my own life. Were there are times in my life early on when I sort of you know, grew cold and cool towards the thing scripture. Yeah, but you know, I could never leave the church. I could never walk. I could never do that. They never, had faith. they never had it. It looks like they did. They may have even give certain evidences that possibly they had it, but it was never real. They never had it. Judas, was Judas ever a believer? No, he was not. He looked like it to the other disciples. They said, well, was Christ fooled? I mean, Christ called him to be one of the twelve. Christ knew, right? But Judas never had it. And we're going to see that we're going to see that illustrated several times as we work our way through John <laughs> because verse 24 what is, and if you want to understand what it means by they believe them what did verse 24 say? But
2: Jesus did not himself to them all men.
1: So what did Christ know that they didn't? He knew who was the real disciple there and who wasn't. And he did not commit himself to the crowds. Why? Because they were fickle. They were fickle. They weren't, this wasn't true belief. Oh, they were enamored by what he did and they followed him because it was sort of cool to see somebody do these kind of signs. I mean, that's sort of an interesting thing back then. But did they truly believe on him as the Son of God? Well, no. no. And he knew that because he could see into their heart and see, wait a minute, these people aren't really believing. I mean they look like they are, they maybe act like they are, but there was no true faith.
2: How many times do you see people get in trouble in their life? Physically, mm-hmm. illness or whatever, they cry out to God. Mm-hmm. God has mercy on them. And I think any of us that have family have seen that, you know. God reaches in and answers prayer and, you know, brings them through that time of affliction or time of distress, whatever it is. And as soon as life gets back on a right track and doing well,
1: they're not even, they don't even go to church. They're gone. They're gone. The only reason they came was
2: to receive something that they wanted at a particular time in their life. Yep.
1: Look, I've been around the church, and I'm not as old as some of you, but I'm staring at the big five-zero coming up here pretty soon. And, um, yeah, it was a long time ago for you, Bart. Um,. <laughs> But when I when I when I when I ponder this, here I, I've been around the church long enough to see them come and go. Yeah. I've seen them come down the aisle. I've seen them you know, bawling their eyeballs out. You think they're the next great thing that's going to hit Christianity. You know, they're going to do wonderful things for God. And a few years later, you ask what happened to them, and you know they're off in a cult or out of the church or hate God or they say, "Well, I've become an atheist, but I'm saved." Well, how do you know? Well, you know, I, I went forward and signed the card. Well, so what? Big deal. I mean, these guys, if there was a, if there was an altar call, these guys went forward and signed a card. Didn't make them true disciples because there's no reality there. And that's the difference between a true disciple and a false. There's a transformation. There's a change. You
2: know, it's funny. Um, at the jail where I work, we keep a stack of Bible periodically, someone from uh, downtown will bring out a box of Bibles to us and
0: uh, I'd say maybe 70% of the time uh, they're from the courtroom where somebody didn't get what they hoped mm-hmm. the rabbit's foot would get them yeah. it don't work yeah.
1: yep God, yeah, and, and the point that we need to understand is, is that salvation and that is not for us, it's for God. They have a very anthropocentric view of things. If God does not fix me and make me happy, well fool on him, I'll go find something else. Yeah. And that's these people here. As long as Christ tickled them and did what they wanted and played the game they wanted, they followed him. As soon as you're saying, you know, you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily and follow me. You want to follow me, you got to hate your father, mother, sister, and brother more than, that's right. you know, they say, whoa wait stop no we don't want that we're out of here see ya and that's what it was well we'll stop here and take a break and come back and pick up chapter 3 thank you for listening to today's study in the gospel of john part 2 of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series
0: thank you for listening this podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to Studio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.